Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And today we're talking about isolation, splendid isolation, which um, I don't know if anyone out there catches the, the title here, but it's also the title of a uh, Warren Zevon song that uh, that I've always really dug because it, it has this, uh, it starts off by going, uh, uh, I want to live alone in the desert. I want to be like Georgia O'Keeffe. I want to live on the Upper East Side and never go down in the street like that. And it's just kind of like it, it starts off with this very, very chipper kind of, uh, yeah, I want to, I want to just get away from all these people. I want to just, you know, I want to move away from all these social, social constraints in my life and just sort of do my own thing. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to be like George O'Keefe and live, move out in the desert or I'm going to isolate myself and, you know, focus on my art or my, my writing or, my video games or what, whatever a person's solitary thing is, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I just want to point out, ladies and gentlemen, that Robert Lamb just, just sang for you. And, <laughs> uh, in no other circumstance would he ever sing. So that was, that was very I, nice. There Thank are other you. circumstances where I sing. Just, you just don't really bust out songs much. So I well, just wanted to, to well, just, say no, this, uh, we, that was a really special uh, moment. Well, I think the thing is we did the electronic music podcast. Yeah. And we, we used actual music samples. Mm-hmm. And that's all well and good, but it takes a little more work. So it's, it's not that I'm brave. I'm just lazy. Because we could actually just sample the Warren Zevon song, but, or I could just sing it. Uh, but anyway, the, the song in question starts off with this very idealized, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, Get some isolation in my life. I'm yeah. gonna move away from people and and social uh, requirements, and I'm gonna be better for it. Well, I mean, it's the hermit fantasy, right? right? I mean, every once in a while, we just get sick of our fellow humans, and we say, "Oh man, I'm just done with I'm all move of you into guys." A cave, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, and if I could just be free of all of you, I'd be free of what ails me. But yeah, that that is an illusion. But like a lot of Warren Zevon songs, the lyrics get progressively darker as the song progresses. Mm-hmm. And uh and so by the end uh, the the lyric like it's talking about Michael Jackson in Disney World uh taking yeah. Goofy's hand and vanishing into the world of self and Which then, is the I think the darkest part of that song. Yeah. For a lot of reasons. Yeah. I mean because it's at that point it's still kind of beautiful but weird. It's like just departing into into personal fantasy. Mm-hmm. And then by the end, he's talking about uh, putting tinfoil up in the windows and lying down in the dark to dream. And um, and I find that when you when you look at the research and when you look at human experience, mm-hmm. this is kind of how it goes. Like on one level, there is the the hermit fantasy. But when people actually do find isolation, if they actually if it's thrust upon them or mm-hmm. they seek it out or they just sort of find themselves there at some point in their life. Uh, the, the effects are generally detrimental. Um, like what, one example that I come back to is, uh, uh, has to do with one of my favorite authors, a guy by the name of uh, Clark Ashton Smith, who mm-hmm. is a, uh, horror, fantasy, sci-fi, weird fiction writer of the, um, uh, you know, early mid, uh, 20th century. And he ended up living kind of a hermit's life out in the middle of nowhere. And while he lived longer than uh, either H.P. Uh, Lovecraft or Robert E. Howard, his sort of you know famous contemporaries of the, the of that time, he ended up spending the like the last uh, like large portion of his life just sort of. He would do some art and stuff. He would do some weird sculpture, but he didn't really write that much anymore. So I, I'll come back to that. I'll think of like here's a guy who moved out into the middle of nowhere and really didn't get that much done or didn't get that much done that anybody would ultimately care about. 
Well, I think it's interesting that he didn't write any movie because some of that requires an understanding of relationships and, and the way that we interact with one another, right? right? And if you don't have that sort of feedback in your life, then you could seriously lose touch with yeah. with uh, that part of yourself, well, that yeah, it, part of your humanity. It ties into the way that our brains work, mm-hmm. and our brains are quite simply not meant to work in isolation. And so that's what we're going to discuss in this podcast. Before we do, though, let's uh, go ahead and hit on some loneliness uh, stats. Uh, these are some uh, stats that I got out of a Psychology Today article mm-hmm. called uh, Predict- uh, Predictors of Loneliness. Um, and through not only in this article, but throughout the literature, you often find references to lonely people and non-lonely people. I find non-lonely people to be a very clunky term. I don't know if there's a better one yeah, you could yeah. use, but yeah. I think we just may have to put up with it. Um, so lonely people were more likely in studies to be younger, to have less sex, to get less sleep, to make less money, and have more health issues, with drug use being the number one uh, health concern among uh, lonely people. Non-lonely people were more likely to be older, to sleep 8 to 10 hours a night, to have sex at least once a week or a few times a month, describe themselves as uh, religious or spiritual, um, have a spouse or partner who accesses email uh, or the Internet daily, volunteer, belong to a local community organization, have five or more people with whom they discuss personal issues and be married. So there you go. Well, and then there's this idea of social isolation, too. Right. right. Um, and this is from Molly Edmonds article on HowStuffWorks.com. It's called uh, What Are the Effects of Isolation in the Mind? And according to researcher John Cacaccio, sorry for our Italian listeners, if we have any. Um, at the University of Chicago, 20% of all people are unhappy because of social social isolation at any given moment. Right. Okay, so si- social isolation could occur for a, a myriad of factors, right? I mean, it could be because... Uh, you know, you're you're part of the senior population and uh, you just don't get to see people as often. Or it could be that you have a disability that limits uh, the amount of interaction you have with people. Right. Yeah. And uh, and definitely there is social isolation and then there um, there's isolation uh, as far as your physical setting goes. And sometimes a person is encountering both of these or just one of these. Um, as we'll discuss. Right. And that's not to say that, that the senior population or people with disabilities all are socially isolated. It's just certain circumstances sort of uh, right. lend themselves more to that um, happening. So and we also have social isolation that we foisted upon ourselves. And then there's also uh, so social isolation that we've been coerced into. And we'll talk a little bit about that, particularly with the prison population. Right. But let's talk about what actually happens in the brain when you are socially isolated. One study uh, that I was looking at was from the uh, University of Chicago. And uh, this, like a lot of these, involved like two groups. There's the non-lonely group right. and the and the group, the lonelies and the non-lonelies, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, I guess you just put out the call for it. I wonder if it's easier to get the lonelies or easier to get the non-lonelies because the non-lonelies maybe have stuff going on. And then do you run the risk of poisoning your lonely test group by bringing them in and having them hang out together? Or do you just make sure they're isolated? And I think you uh, isolate them. Also, yeah. there's a the question about extrovert and introvert, too. Yeah. Right? So it, as being part of this, like if you're an introvert, you're probably more lonely, I would say. I, I don't know, because I'm a part-time introvert, but I wouldn't say that I'm completely lonely. Okay. Um, anyway, this study, University of Chicago. It's my part-time Chicago. job. Yeah. Uh, University of Chicago, they showed the lonelies and the non-lonelies photographs of people in both pleasant settings and unpleasant settings. So like one uh, one photo will be a person hanging out in a playground and another one will be a picture of somebody getting bit by a poisonous snake in a playground. So 
Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, one's pleasant, one's not pleasant. Right. So, um, when uh, viewing the pleasant pictures, the non-lonely subjects showed much more activity in the section of the brain known as the ventral stratum, more than the lonely subjects. Okay. All right? And uh, this uh, particular part of the uh, brain plays an important role in learning. It's also the part of the brain's uh, reward center that's st- generally stimulated by uh, things like food and love. So the lonely subjects displayed far less activity in this region while viewing pleasant pictures, and they also had less brain activity when shown the unpleasant pictures. When non-lonely subjects viewed the unpleasant pictures, they demonstrated activity in the temporal parietal junction, an area of the brain associated with empathy, and the non-lonely subjects had a had a much uh, lesser response. So this is a, an interesting view into how loneliness affects our empathy. Mm-hmm. The non-lonelies were able to demonstrate more empathy for the person in the bad situation, in the unpleasant photo, than the lonely people, which I found found really interesting. Yeah, well, and again, that's because, you know, we've got the mirror neurons, right? We've talked about mirror neurons and how we can't help but mimic each other and and mimicking each other when we are faced with each other and uh, communicating with, with one another. You know, we are experiencing an emotional jolt because we're mimicking, you know, if you're smiling at me, then I'm going to smile back and I'm going to feel that emotion. So that makes sense that if you're isolated, then you're not as connected to those feelings of empathy. Well, we can't help but think of the... Um the stereotype of the crazy hermit with a shotgun, right? Yes. I yeah. wasn't thinking shotgun now. Really? I think shotgun. Okay. Or maybe pitchfork or something, but. <laughs> pitchfork. Well, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's different. You grew up uh, like in Michigan, right? Mm-hmm. But in, in the South. Which in theory, actually, shotgun should be, you know, front oh, yeah? and center in my mind. Okay. Well, well. You, it, Michigan people know what I'm talking about here. Okay. So the crazy hermit with a shotgun and the idea that he's going to come up to you. Mm-hmm. And he is going to be very uh, obtuse and belligerent, and he's going to be all, get off my land or I'll shoot you, kind of a thing. Um, with that accent. With that accent. I get, that's more of a, that's my Michigan hermit accent. It would be, it would be more Southern uh, here in the South. No, no, I'll, I'll roll with that. Um, but that's interesting that you, you look at it that way because people who undergo sensory deprivation, right, which is part mm-hmm. of isolation, they find that the central executive center of their brains uh, are affected, and and those that part of the brain controls language, memory, and vision. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we'll talk about that a little bit more too when we talk about prisoners and hostages. Okay, but but yeah, just on a, on a on a very basic level, you can imagine the hermit who is not able to empathize with the person he's he's uh, he's he's getting onto. Mm-hmm. He's maybe not able to communicate as well, mm-hmm. and his his brain seems a little foggy too because he has no. Uh, or very limited interaction with people, and his and, and and it's affecting his brain, his crazy hermit brain. Well, and not only that, he's probably really stressed. Yeah, because apparently yeah. loneliness actually leads to stress. And researchers have had subjects uh, estimate room temperature. This is interesting. Room temperatures after recalling a time that they were snubbed or socially excluded, and the subjects reported colder temperatures than the participants who were asked to remember times with friends. And this actually suggests that we can we can feel social chills if we feel excluded or isolated. Right. Um, again, this is you know some acting on our body, or our physiology. Right. And that you know that's a, a type of stress that you would feel. Now, another uh, interesting study that relates to how loneliness affects uh, just our basic mental processing. Um, there have been various uh, studies with mice uh, where they look at the effects of exercise on neurogenesis, mm-hmm. which is uh, the creation of new brain cells, just basic brain upkeep, I guess you can think of it, uh, 
in, in those terms. Uh, and that's and, one of the rewards of exercise, right? right? Right, right. When you exercise, you get this big burst of new neurons and uh, neural connections. Right, yeah, and and another you know, great reason for exercise. Uh, so in these studies, they would put the mice through the wheels and then and then study, um, you know, how much neurogenesis was going on. And uh, then another study came along, and they decided, well, we're going to test it with rats because rats are a much uh, closer uh, neurological fit, fit uh, for with humans, humans, yeah. yeah. And uh, so they put these rats in, and the rats tanked across the board, like mm-hmm. the ones that uh, had exercise and the ones that didn't. And they're like, what happened? So they studied it, and they found that the problem was that these rats had been isolated beforehand. Okay, and rats are, are very... Um, they're very social They're creatures. very social creatures, yeah. right. Yeah, so, if, that's why they're always hanging out together, you know, chatting. Coffee houses. Coffee houses. And incidentally, as we discussed in the past, that's why they can be tickled and laugh. <laughs> That's actually, yeah. you're right. That can be. Uh, that, yeah, we're not making that up. Uh, yeah. You have to go back to our uh, humor podcast uh, for details on that tidbit. Yeah, so they were putting them in there without uh, without any socialization. They've been isolated, and it actually prevented the exercise from having a positive effect on um, on brain activity. Yeah, and they think that is because when when you um, undergo exercise, it's a type of stress, right? Right. And so the, the stress of isolation, the stress of exercise didn't allow uh, this neurogenesis to take place, these new neural connections to take place. Whereas, you know, with, with, the, uh, with the rats that were socialized, right, they did right. have neurogenesis Yeah, when, when they went back place. and they started socializing these rats, then they were benefiting from the exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the solitary ones, nope, not at all. Yeah. Which and it makes me think of the um, the various sci-fi films we've had where there'll be like a, a lone solitary person in space, uh, generally with some robots, be it uh, you know Bruce Dern in Silent Running mm-hmm. or uh, Sam Rockwell in Moon or or you know Joel Robinson on uh, Mystery Science Theater to a lesser extent because they they don't really get into the the science there, but you'll see somebody like running on a treadmill, staying in shape, uh, and uh, and going a little crazy and. Uh, and now that I think about it, I'm like, well, Bruce Dern's character probably isn't benefiting from any exercise that he's doing because he doesn't have anybody to talk to, except these two robots that are very not very expressive at all. It's interesting that you say that because they have noticed that people who are in isolation and animals who are in isolation begin to pace. Ah. And the reason they do this, they, they posit that... Uh, because they don't, they're not getting the sort of stimulation that they would otherwise. They're creating it for themselves. Like the brain needs constant input, it turns out. Mm-hmm. And so being on a treadmill, pacing back and forth will give you at least something with the, uh, something that your brain can play with, some sort of input. Yeah. It's like, you, you know how like, uh, some, uh, or maybe a lot of, uh, I'm not really an engine person, uh, guys, but, um, you'll have like a, an engine on a boat. Right. Mm-hmm. And it'll be designed to work in the water. It'll depend on the water. If you run it out of the water too long, it's going to overheat because it doesn't have water interacting with the mechanisms. Mm-hmm. I kind of think of that in terms of the brain, because our, our brains have evolved to help us navigate, uh, as we've discussed before, a, a world of fixed and movable objects, uh, multiple fixed and movable objects, a world of symbols, mm-hmm. a world of social interaction. And just evolutionary, we've, uh, survival has selected for those, 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 those properties. Mm-hmm. So if you take us out of that environment and put us in a, a situation where things are not changing, where things are not moving, where there are no symbols or there's the same symbols are, are, are there and they're staying the same and there's no social, um, strata to deal with, then what does the brain start doing, right? It's- like you say, it starts having to create work for itself. It starts having to, uh, uh, this is where you end up with with situations of, of paranoia, even, mm-hmm. where someone has to sort of aspire some sort of movement or logic to the world around them. It needs a story to glom onto, right? Really, um, 
Uh, this was interesting. There's a documentary called Alone. It's a documentary by the BBC. And what they did is they recreated an experiment um, from the 1950s in which um, – some some college students were uh, put in isolation for 48 hours mm-hmm. in this documentary and then by a man with an axe yes okay. with a with a hockey mask on okay. um but in this documentary uh, what they did is they took six people and and isolated them for 48 hours in various ways but in the documentary you see this woman uh, becoming convinced that the sheets on her bed that she's in complete darkness by the way are are sopping wet and she becomes very angry about it. And what's happening is that she doesn't have that sensory input. And so she's becoming confused about the, you know, what she can pick up around her. Um, and, and although the sheets were, were cold, they certainly weren't wet. And so she couldn't accurately square her sensory perceptions with reality. Wow. Again, that's that feedback that we really need. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's also important to note, uh, and this is something that's definitely been observed in prison systems with people in solitary confinement, is that there, if there are pre-existing mental conditions, if mm-hmm. there's any kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, psychosis going on already, um, solitary confinement is just going to aggravate it and make it worse. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so people with, with pre-existing conditions are going to be able to cope with it far less. Yeah. 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 And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, but, uh, um, Right after this break, we'll talk more about that BBC documentary. Yeah, we're going to leave you alone for a minute. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. And we're back. I told you we'd be back. Yep. No See, here we are. There's, there's some feedback going on. Yeah. Um, okay. So the BBC documentary alone, they just more specifics on this. There were six people. They're deprived of sensory input. Essentially, they're put in solitary confinement for 48 hours and observed by researchers. Um, one of the findings is that around 30 hours into the experiment, they began to pace back and forth, which we talked about. And um, it was also noted that they began to hallucinate. Uh-huh. And they began to get very aggressive. Um, and just so people know, like there were two groups of three. Uh, one of them, one of the groups were given um, these, I think they're called arm cuffs. And so they can't feel anything. It just covers their entire arm. And then they are also given goggles. And so although the lights are on, they can't see anything too clearly. It's just, it's sort of fuzzy. And then they, they're given white noise uh, or sort of that's piped into their cell. You sure this was a study and not a horror movie? Because it's no, I'm a lot sure. Like a I'm movie. sure. Okay. And part of me did wonder, you know, because it's a, a documentary. Like, were were was the anti upped psychologically? Because when people know that they're being filmed, obviously they they behave in different ways. But then I thought to myself, no, I think that anybody who is under lock and key for 48 hours by themselves, you know, either with arm cuffs on and goggles and white noise, or in a cell that's completely dark. Uh, for 48 hours is going to start to go a little bit nuts. And um, again, this was an experiment from the 1950s that they recreated for this documentary. Uh, there was a 2007 study that ties in uh, with this uh, from the University of Illinois at uh, Chicago College of Medicine. Mm-hmm. And they reported that anxiety and aggression that result from social isolation trace to altered levels of an enzyme that controls production of a brain hormone. Uh, the two enzymes oh, yeah. that are needed for the production of uh, allopregnanoline, a brain hormone that acts to reduce stress through the regulation of GABA, um, 
and which is a really important neurotransmitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they found that the level of one of these uh, enzymes called uh, 5-alpha reductase uh, type 1 was reduced nearly 50% in lonesome mice. Uh, and levels of the other enzyme did not change. But uh, but uh, this is an interesting uh, insight into how um, you know aggressive behavior emerges in uh, isolated individuals or mice. Right, right. Um, the hermit becomes super aggressive. There's somebody the in his land. The pitchfork, Grabs the pitchfork and the gun and starts freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were, you were going to bring it back to the, the hermit. So isolation, can it be used as a weapon? Yes, it can. Okay. Okay. Back like to go the- to your room. Well, yeah, right. Stand in the corner. In it's a like way, basic right? Isolation if you're therapy, depriving yeah. your kid of, of social interaction and here you're she grounded, is. that kind of thing. Yes. And they have to go in the room. Then, I mean, obviously they're bothered by it, um, unless they have access to their PlayStation and whatnot. Well, no, no, no computer, no internet. Grounded from the internet for a week. Wow. I never thought about it before. I mean, you know, I have a kid. I never thought about it. It was like solitary confinement. Yeah. Like go to your room. Whew. Okay. I have to think about that. So the roots of <laughs> Time this. Time in the box. <laughs> go to the box, kid. Yeah. I'm going to start saying that. Uh, the roots of this actually go back to doctor. Well, actually, I mean, the, the roots of this are, you know, this has gone back for a very long time, this idea of solitary confinement. But um, the first time a caveman was not invited to a party. Yeah. Felt chills. Yeah. Yeah. And then and painted about it in the cave. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Donald Hebb, he was a prominent fixture in the 1950s and 60s psychology community. Um, and there's not a lot of definitive information about his experiments with isolation. Uh, it's kind of, you know, the, the, the heaven, some people who say that, uh, he was, uh, sort of the feeder system for the CIA in okay. terms of how they conduct torture then and even now today. Um, but we do know that he had student volunteers at McGill University where he was the head of psychology, uh, put on, um, goggles, gloves, and earmuffs, and then he put them in air-conditioned cubicles. And lo and behold, in 24 hours, hallucinations. 48 hours, they suffered complete breakdowns. Uh, and he noticed, he noticed that they also suffered a disintegration of personality. And this is very, again, similar to the torture techniques used at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, his research was eventually tagged as, as too cruel and shut down. Um, but we do know from this research that this, this could be very effective as a means of torture or as a weapon of, of trying to get someone to, um, bend to your will, so to speak. Um, in the BBC documentary again, uh, you know, this was a recreation of, of what Hebb had done. And you see this comedian who's, who's one of the participants in this documentary, and he is the first to crack. And, and you think about it, and this is this really extroverted guy who depends on feedback from his right. audience all the time. Needs um, it, craves it. Needs yeah. it, craves it. So it's very interesting to see that behavior begin to show up very early on. So we know they uh, began to get agitated, they began to hallucinate, but by the end of their stay in the documentary, it turns out that their memory and their information processing abilities were tested, or retested, because they were tested at the beginning, and they were found to be quite compromised. Which would make sense, because while they were in the tank... They were basically in a reality TV program. They so were in a reality TV program. Their, their their minds were sapped. Yes, their minds were sapped. Um, but also, like, their circadian rhythms, within within hours, they began yeah. to, to lose touch of, of what time it was, and their circadian rhythms just sort of failed them, and they began to nap and um, think that, oh, well, it must be nighttime, and uh, while away the time in that manner. Yeah, I mean, it, it just goes back to we are beings that have evolved to live in a certain environment. And if we're in an altered environment or if we're taken out of that environment entirely, um, 
it's detrimental to, to how we work. So, um, which is why it's so effective in, in right. a place like Guantanamo, right? Right. You don't have to, uh, to do anything physically cruel when you can just say, well, I'm not going to, uh, you know, I'm not going to break your fingers. I'm not going to, mm-hmm. to beat you. I'm just going to leave you alone until that loneliness drives you nuts. Yeah. And this is from a Wired article on solitary confinement um, in which they talked to psychologist Greg Haney. And he says that it's not just that psychological isolation is a painful experience, but that um, when people's sense of themselves is placed in jeopardy, they are more malleable and easily manipulated. In a certain sense, solitary confinement is thought to enhance the effectiveness of other torture techniques. Right. So it's used to break down the, the person. Yeah. And in general, yeah, we interact with people. It's kind of like I was talking about earlier. You have that, that temptation. No, this was in another podcast. Sorry. Where it's talking about something bothers you. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if you're, if there's no one around to vent to, you might be tempted to go on the internet to vent about your pet peeve. Yeah. Well, part of that is, is we're reaching out. We have to have somebody else sort of tell us, yeah, that is so. This is the way the world works, doesn't it? Yes, this is the way the world works. This is how I work, right? Yes, this is how you work. Someone that will agree with you, like, yeah, um, you know, that uh, reality shows totally are annoying. Like, you know, I just did. And you uh, verified, you know, what I just said and validated my, uh, my belief system. Well, it's this, the story of I, right? right? And we've talked about this before too, like unconscious or consciousness, the story of I that we continually are feeding data to. Right. So once you, right, once you take away the feedback, then, then who am I without that? We'll get more uh, into space in a little bit, but uh, NASA, of course, is very interested in how uh, isolation affects us, you know, because they're very interested in sending people into isolated environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, Far from the earth and far often from, from most other people. So, uh, they have, they have found that one of the, the, the things they have to keep an eye on is that you'll say, so you have eight people living in close confines, annoying the, the heck out of each other. And then who are they going to vent to? They can't vent to each other because, uh, you know, most of the time you're going to have a little more decorum than that. You know, if, if you, if you're stuck in a, in a tube with, uh, John and Sally, and John keeps smacking his gum. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you're not going to complain to you know to the to this guy about it. No, because you're manacled gonna... to that person for yeah. five more months. Yeah. So they found that it's it's very much a, an, an item of concern. They found that um, journal keeping actually helps because it helps people sort of huh. a they're venting, mm-hmm. but then they're also they're forced to really think about how they're feeling about things. Like they they uh, did a study where they uh, took ten people on the international uh, international space station. Mm-hmm. And they had them keep a journal and it just, you know, generated like uh, something like a thousand and something pages. It was you know, a lot of, a lot of journal writing came of this, but the people would generally, they would start off being like, oh man, this sucks. But then they were forced to, to think, well, actually the international space station is pretty cool. And it's, you know, the situation right. is not that bad really. And so they have to actually, um, look at, at how they're feeling about things. They were reframing it right. so that they could survive, which is really interesting because that's something that a lot of prisoners do, uh, specifically prisoners who are in solitary confinement. And it's estimated that there's about 25,000 prisoners sitting in solitary confinement right now in the U.S. Um, and when we talk about solitary confinement, we're talking about a six by eight uh, foot sale, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no windows. And prisoners are held there anywhere from like 10 to 15 days at a stretch. And they have been reports of people saying that they really they went into themselves um, when they had sensory deprivation. They were able to actually bring up sights and smells from their past and get lost in these for hours. 
And, but, but the downside of this, of course, I mean, well, there's no upside of this, right? Um, I mean, I guess the ability to go into yourself and to survive is certainly something. Well, remember, um, I think maybe, I can't remember if you brought it up or a listener brought it up when, after we had talked about the memory palace, they mm-hmm. mentioned that, uh, in the book, Silence of the Lambs, Hannibal Lecter, um, copes with his confinement by using the memory palace to construct this kind of place for him to go. Right. And then he paints like pictures on the wall and stuff, but, um, Right. But then yeah. he also had access to things to stimulate his mind. Right. But when you're in solitary confinement, I mean, it's it's a bed. It's uh, the fluorescent lights are on for 24 hours. And although you can hear things around you, you are alone. You are not really interacting. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, people, they do go them, into themselves. But what happens is that they're actually... Uh, having some very big problems with their memory. I mean, people who have been in solitary confinement, there's one guy who was in, um, I think, in and out for like 18 years. And mm-hmm. then he was cleared of um, his crime. And 10 years later, he still says that he has problems with memory, problems with interacting with people, and also problems with navigating, which is interesting because, oh, you know, we've talked about the, the visual cortex and how important it is for memory and, you know, when you walk into a room, you're, you're actually trying to blueprint that room in your mind. Uh-huh. Uh, so it would make sense that if you were stuck in this one place for so very long and, uh, you know, 18 years and now you're out of it, then your context for the word, world greatly changes. Yeah. Um, well, and you end up, I mean, the, the list of symptoms that people have experienced from solitary confinement mm-hmm. or prison situation, I mean, it includes stuff like de- depression, despair, anxiety, rage, claustrophobia, hallucinations, uh, problems with impulse control, mm-hmm. um, impaired vision and hearing, uh, weakening of the immune system, uh, absence of menstrual periods in women, uh, premature uh, menopause, uh, aggressive behavior in prisoners. Uh, I mean, it, it just... That's what I thought was interesting, the the menstruation, too, because you wouldn't think of that as something that was dependent upon feedback. You know, Mm -hmm. that's something that just regularly happens, right? But when you're taking, if you're taken out of the rhythms of life, then it's greatly going to alter you at a physical level, too, right? Right. Um, And Haney actually talks uh, about the fact that we don't know the long-term effects. And the reason is because uh, we don't have good data on follow-ups of people who come out of the environment. It's not something that's easy to study, and it's not necessarily something that prison systems are eager for people to have a look at, right? Right. Um, I wanted to mention, too, that that documentary talked to uh, a university professor by the name of Brian Keenan, and he was taken hostage in Beirut and held in a windowless cell for eight months. Um, and he cat up for 10 minutes at a time and he walked the staircase constantly. Um, and I, the reason I bring him up is because I thought that his personal assessment of the situation was very interesting. And we can sit here and talk about, you know, here are the effects. It's, you know, it's a uh, cognitive impairments. But he said the nothingness was extremely hard because it was, how am I going to get through these next 10 minutes? Or months later, how am I going to get through the next day? The blackness was palpable. There was nothing there to confirm to me that there was human existence outside of me or even inside of me. Wow. Which is really chilling because I thought, well, that just points back to this idea that... Your life uh, becomes a Joy Division song. It's <laughs> That is, that could be chilling. You know, if it's... Uh, 24 seven. Uh, but again, that's this idea that you, yourself, your sense of self becomes completely fragmented. Hmm. You lose yourself. Now, one of the more uh, newsworthy stories of isolation to occur uh, in the last few years was, of course, the uh, 33 Chilean miners that uh, spent 69 days trapped deep underground until they were 
finally brought to the surface uh, on October 13th, 2010. And just getting them out took about 24 hours. Mm-hmm. But but it was a really tense situation because you had 33 people down there and had to get them out, had to figure out how to make sure that they're staying healthy and sane down there. Um, and uh, they eventually brought in NASA for advice. But weirdly enough, uh, and this was in a Popular Science article, um, they had sent down uh, some music to help them pass the time, but also they sent down a Monopoly board, which I know we're probably there's some, probably some listeners out there who are fans of Monopoly, but uh, we all know that Monopoly is is an intensely irritating game. I mean, I, even if you enjoy it, you got to admit that even in the best of situations, mm-hmm. it can cause close friends and loved ones to try and stab each other in the eye with forks. Um, or scald each other with pizza or just, I mean, it's, it's a brutal pizza game. There's so specific. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking of a party, party atmosphere turning Mm -hmm. violent, you know, or stabbing somebody with pizza if it was sharp enough. But, uh, I mean, there, there have been articles about how Monopoly is a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, and it brings out the worst in people because it's, it's not about like working together as much. It's about brutally smacking down your opponent and, it also takes forever. Mm-hmm. It, it, Monopoly games tend to, to last until the wee hours or until the first uh, person bleeds. And, uh, and so, pizza. yeah. And so, so the idea of sending this game down to people who are trapped in an isolated environment, uh, who are already very stressed, uh, it just seems insane. Like, were they trying to get them to turn on each other and, uh, and, and like just pummel each other to death so no one would have to worry about dragging them back to the surface again? I'm just saying Monopoly sounds like a very odd choice. I think that you're going to have to talk to, to, to whoever, uh, manages these sort of crises <laughs> and say, you know what? This is, this is my, what were you this, thinking? This is a list what... of acceptable games to yes. send down the hole. I'm thinking, yeah, any, anything that is shoots that is, and ladder. Well, shoots and ladder. Yeah. I don't know. There's not, a, there's not a lot of engagement in well, that. Well, that's the problem with a game. I mean, there's, it fosters competition, not collaboration for the most part. Well, there, there are a lot of fine collaborative games out there. But at any rate, I'm getting off, I'm getting off the, the point here. But, uh, but yeah, so. I mean, are they going to like LARP down there? I don't know. Well, there's not room for LARPing. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Um, or, or any large scale board games or tabletop games. But at any rate, people were, cons- everyone was rightfully concerned about the, uh, the physical and mental well-being of these individuals. Mm-hmm. And so NASA was actually brought in to advise on the situation since they had done studies and, right. and have uh, some resident experts on uh, the topic of uh, isolation. Yeah. And in fact, uh, it is from NASA that we get this term irrational antagonism, right? This is a term yes. that describes what happens to people who are isolated together, which you talked about a little bit with people on missions. Yeah. Roommates in space, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Familiarity uh, breeds contempt. Exactly. Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, one of the things that astronauts have talked about is that you're in this close environment and you you may feel anger at your your other astronauts. But but in most of the, most of the cases, you don't want to vent it because you feel like you'll make the situation worse. So you end up with this. uh Kind of silent antagonism growing. Yeah, you know? you're either journaling or you're blaming it on other people, um, other than your fellow astronauts, right? Yeah. You're blaming it on mission control. Yeah, yeah. Mission control apparently is often the scapegoat for a lot of this anger. Yeah. Because you're also up in a very risky situation. Mm-hmm. You're basically, it's kind of like mountain climbing and everybody's attached to the same wire. You don't want to set off any uh, fireworks. These guys are, are, you're in space. You're depending on each other to get back home safely. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so you lay it cool and then you just let ground control have it. Over oh, yeah, every little thing. Light into them. Yeah. Um, the, the punching bag of the astronaut. So, so I found, I found that particularly, uh, interesting. And, um, Mary Roach actually talks about this a lot in her uh, book on Mars. Mm-hmm. 
um, packing for Mars, packing for Mars, which is uh, filled with all sorts of curious stuff about uh, the space program. But she had one particular quote that we were both really amused about. It had to do with, uh, I believe, uh, submariners, right? I believe the submariners, and they were at a research station. And so when they were finally uh, taken out of their confinement, um, and this is a quote from her book, this is what they had to say about it. I once met a man who told me that after landing in Christchurch after a winter at the South Pole Research Station, he and his companions spent a couple days just wandering around, staring in awe at flowers and trees. At one point, one of them spotted a woman pushing a stroller. A baby, he shouted, and they all rushed across the street to see. The woman turned the, str- turned the stroller and ran. So isolation could potentially turn you into a baby-chasing maniac. Yes, yeah. and it would make sense because if you're if you're isolated for six months, right? I mean, mm-hmm. gosh, even like a week, you know, all of a sudden you're you're out and you see the sun and the leaves and you see the sun just you know, dappling the leaves and a newborn baby smile. And I mean, it, all of a sudden you're just a, a cliche of a song, right? Yeah. Roach also credits uh, an interview with Norbert Kraft, uh, who's another individual at NASA. And uh, Kraft mentioned that there had been some research into the possibility of sending married couples into space to limit uh, to, to limit some of the uh, the negative vibes that might happen up there and some of the feelings of isolation. I get the isolation part, but I do not. I mean, the whole like familiarity breeds contempt part. Yeah. I mean, I just don't see a lot of marriages actually surviving. Um, and I say this just personally. I mean, maybe this could happen, but um, I I love my spouse. He is wonderful. I don't necessarily want to work with him, and I don't want to be stuck in a, a capsule with him for six months. Well, it's like I mean, it's like the whole. But I don't want to be in a capsule for six months. So there right, you go. Right. Well, it's like the whole canoeing thing. Canoeing is a test of a relationship. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which uh, my wife and I survived canoeing twice so far, I think. But yeah, this is like the ultimate. Like this is even more than canoeing. And and I don't know. I don't know if there are many uh, marriages out there that are up to the test. Well, see, now that you say that, my, my husband and I love to canoe. And when we lived in North Carolina, we did it every weekend. Uh-huh. But it does require like you couldn't be mad at each other and canoe. Right. Because, because you, you have you, to collaborate. Yeah, you have to collaborate. And if you get mad, you have to work through it. Otherwise, you're not going to make it to your destination or you're just going to float around out there in the middle of the lake until somebody comes and fetches you in a boat. Yeah, yeah, and you're just sitting there and your arms crossed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about this, too, in terms of relationships, that the isolation effect in, in families, um, like, I think this is one of the reasons why families stay in business. Because have you ever thought about this, like you, when you've been isolated or alone for a long period of time and in, and maybe there's a family member who's driving you nuts and yet – you still pick up the phone uh-huh. to call that person. I mean, this is really keeps moms in business, I think. Well, it, it makes me think of um, um, my wife's Aunt Judy, uh, who has these two. She has these two horses and uh, these horses hate each other or one, one in particular hates the other one. Mm-hmm. And it will if it gets a chance, it will bite at the horse and just just want to just bite it and kick it. And just just a real jerk. But if they're separated then the horse freaks out and it's like, where is my friend? Where, right. is, where is that horse so that I might bite him? Uh, <laughs> you know, and, um, you completely other horse. Yeah. yeah. I know. And I, again, I think it's because it's pointing back at itself, right? Because same thing. If I'm calling it, let's say that, you know, my mom and I have been in a bit of a tizzy. Uh-huh. And yet if I'm not feeling great or I'm feeling lonely, I will call her, even though I know that she might say something to sort of, 
drive me nuts. I think simply because, well, A, because I love her, but B, because it sort of validates like us. Yeah, the story of you, the I, yep, that's right. I'm your mom and that's all true. You exist. There you go. That's that's all you need to know right there. And that is why we are all manacled to one another. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, human isolation. It's definitely something that uh, that may seem more attractive on the outside than it actually is, especially, you know, if we're really busy people, you, you may end up fantasizing about like, oh, if I had everything to myself for like a weekend. If I was Georgia O'Keefe. Yeah. If I was Georgia O'Keefe, everything would be knocked. Uh, but it's not really the case. Like I'll, I actually have this where I'll, I'll look at my own life, specifically if I'm thinking about like writing, like mm-hmm. finding time to write, which is, takes up a lot of time, requires, generally requires isolation. And it's just hard to fit into the schedule of a busy life. Um, you know, talking about outside of work, right? Yeah, fiction yeah, writing, yeah. yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll think back to times in my life where I had lots of free time, where there was probably a fair amount of loneliness in my life, but I didn't get a lot of work done in, in those times either. You know, it's, it's. That's because you were procrastinating. Well, which we've I, talked about. Well, I think there was a lot going on. Um, you know, and then obviously if you're isolated and you're lonely, your, your brain's just not working as well. Yeah. That's and your, true. your time management, at least for me, ends up going out of whack too if I'm by myself. So I'll look back at these times and I'll, and I'll, I have to remind myself, it's like, well, you had plenty of free time then. You didn't get it, get anything done because it's only, I feel like it's only when I'm really busy, when I'm having to find the time to fit things in that I can actually maximize those times. Mm-hmm. And when I have, you know, enough social activity in my life and enough people in my life to give it all some sort of meaning. Well, the truth of the matter is that people are stimulating, even though they might, you know, annoy us sometimes or I might annoy someone or someone might annoy me. But, you know, we're always after a new experience and we need those new experiences to, you know, literally grow our brain right. cells. Yeah. Um, so and it would make sense that that would inform our creativity and our ability to create. Yeah. So like it or not, it, you know, we're, we're paired up with a. Uh, with our fellow humans. So speaking of our fellow humans, uh, I have a couple of emails to read here from, from some listeners. We heard from a listener by the name of David. And David says, I love your recent episodes where you have delved into philosophical topics. I especially love the podcast entitled, Is Free Will an Illusion? As well as the one about the possibility of a cubed Earth. I do hope that you keep uh, doing some more philosophical topics. Um, I would enjoy, uh, especially enjoy one on morality, ethics, and how science can or cannot inform morality. Um, also, an, e- an episode examining uh, Descartes' famous axiom, I think, therefore I am, would be awesome. I think that everyone is a philosopher, but not everyone knows it. People are often driven away from philosophy due to the fact that philosophers can be an intolerable lot. But behind all of the, the sometimes pretentious philosophical jargon are the questions that we all grapple with. You guys uh, can put alienating concepts into everyday language with, that both philosoph- philosophers and non-philosophers can both enjoy. So keep up the good work. Your mix of science and philosophy is the spot. Oh, thank you. Yeah. That, that's good to know that people are enjoying that. Yeah, I feel like we try and inject a fair amount of philosophy into whatever we're talking about because ultimately like that's the whole like mind-blowing area is where we have to fit ourselves and our own experience into this uh, new knowledge and, uh, and figure out how our view of everything relates to it. So, uh, true. Yeah. And certainly philosophers can be a little off putting. It's true. It's the beards. The beards. <laughs> not all philosophers have beards. And not all lady philosophers have beards either. Well, just in, in case you were wondering. Even though I've, I've, I know some philosophers, I mean, I've, I have known philosophers and I, I can definitely identify real people that are philosophers. I also I hear philosophers and I, I can't help but think like marble statue of some old dude. Well, know. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. that's that's just the patriarchal society in yeah, which we're living under. And it, 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 it does draw back to the whole idea that, like, philosophy is often viewed as this this thing that is no longer relevant. 
But as we've discussed in previous uh, episodes, new advances in neuroscience, Mm -hmm. new advances in uh, our understanding of of the universe, these uh, force us to sometimes reevaluate old philosophical questions or or stir up new philosophical debates, Mm -hmm. uh, like the whole issue of consciousness and free will. Well, yeah. the idea of are, are we alone in the universe or are we uh, just one of other of numerous species? It's the underpinnings of society, right? Yeah. We can't really operate without uh, having a philosophical discussion about things. Exactly. Uh, we also heard from a listener by the name of Megan. Uh, Megan writes in and says, uh, I want to start off by telling you uh, what a big fan I am. I really love the wide breadth of topics you cover. I always feel like by the time the podcast is over, I am just a little bit smarter about something. Uh, in the listener mail uh, section of a recent episode, What If Earth Was a Cube, the idea of actors being the biggest liars in the world was brought up. As a professional actor who was uh, uh, conservatorily trained, I am both amused and slightly put off. Actors do not lie. We create alternate realities. I feel very strongly about this, even though I know that not everyone will agree with me. In my experience, it is obvious to the audience when an actor is lying because he, she, is not really living in the circumstances that have been created by the play, and the audience feels and quite honestly is gypped. Uh, if we want to dwell really deeply into it, it goes back to creating a lie so detailed that you can believe it is, is reality. And this is where some actors get into trouble when they decide to really become their character for something more than the purpose of telling the story to the audience. Uh, I'm going to stop here before my points become too confusing. Thank you for all your hard work. Thank you. That's really interesting. I was thinking yeah. about fiction writing, too. They always say, like, you know, even though you're weaving a tale... It should be as truthful as possible. Yeah. It should mirror truth. So. It's great to hear from an actual actor uh, about uh, about about that, though, about the idea of acting as as lie. But also uh, in, the, in the podcast, we, I mean, the, the whole thing we we're discussing, too, is the idea of lying as an alteration of reality. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's a, there's a little uh, give and take from both of those. Like, yeah. They're not the same, but there are some definite uh, links between what they're doing. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, perspective from Megan. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Thanks, Megan, for... Uh, feedback on that. Uh, and if you have feedback on something, if you have uh, some sort of cool story you want to share, uh, if, if you have a particular area of expertise that lines up with something we've been talking about, hunt us down. We are on Facebook and Twitter. We are below the mind on both of those, and you can see all sorts of stuff we're up to and what we're reading about, what we're researching, what we're considering podcasting about as well. And you can always drop us a line at mind at HowStuffWorks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House of Work staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow.